The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. God Almighty, we do indeed declare that you are glorious. You are full of every perfection, every good thing, every right thing, every wonderful thing, every true thing is found in you to the utmost. You are full of every perfection, glorious. And we sang that, Lord, and we thought about it some, I'm sure, but I pray now that as we move forward in our time this morning, that you would open up to us a greater comprehension of and appreciation of your glory. Show us your glory. Show us new wonders. Or perhaps old wonders seen freshly. Would you do a work, Father, Son, and Spirit, to do a work here among your people and in the hearts of those who are here or elsewhere who are not your people yet, would you do a work to speak and to call us to lift up our eyes up above what usually draws us and holds us, the things of this earth? Draw us to look above them. Not to ignore them, but to look above them. To look perhaps through them at something higher. You've put us in this world. You've given us the things that are around us and the things that consume us. And you mean for all things to be ours and all things to point us towards you and to grow us in appreciation of you. So Father, do that please this morning by your Spirit. Draw our eyes upward. Show us Your glory. Cause us to marvel at it. To rejoice in it. To marvel at You and to rejoice in You. Draw out from us what the Scriptures teach us, what Jesus Himself taught us is the the summation of the law, to love You with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Indeed, to love our neighbors as ourselves, but... The first commandment, no other God before you. Draw out from us deep, consistent love. Use your word towards that end, Lord. Use this time here this morning towards that end. Reveal yourself and draw out from us loyal love. Give order to our time here, Lord. Help us to to think clearly and to to not be distracted, to speak clearly and not aimlessly, that we would worship You truly and grow to Your honor and to our great good. Make that happen, Father, Son, and Spirit, I pray. Use Your Word. Speak. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 18 where we pick up the story, and really it's running right on into 18. We pick up the story from chapter 17 where David killed Goliath. 
We saw last week this very lengthy and detailed account of how the Lord raised up this particular teenager and used him to deliver his people from reproach, that is, from shame and disgrace that was hanging over them in the form of this giant named Goliath. The Lord brings David, whom he had already chosen, anointed. David perhaps didn't know it, but he had chosen him already to be the next king of Israel. And and he brought him at just the right time to just the right place so that he heard this this taunt, this, this shaming from Goliath. He brings him to the battlefield and then uses him to win the victory so that, as we saw in 46 and 47 last week, so that the name of the Lord would be known and honored, treasured and trusted in the nations out there, that the nations would know there is a God in Israel, and so that this congregation, so that the people themselves would know and would honor the Lord as their warrior, as their defender and deliverer. He brought the son of Jesse from Bethlehem to deliver the people from Goliath. And that's how David was described, you recall, at the very end of the chapter. Saul asked a few times, who is this, this boy again? Whose son is he? he? He knew David himself, but whose son is he? Remember that, that scene there at the end where David comes and explains his lineage? And so David's actions and his response to Saul's question is what leads us then right into our chapter where it shows us two broad responses to David and calls us to respond. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 17, verse 57, so as to catch the flow right into our chapter. And then I'll read all of chapter 18 and pass back through it to observe some of the details and then make a couple of larger points. So beginning in 1 Samuel, chapter 17, verse 57. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And the saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. 
but David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. And then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholothite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter Michal loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, Let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servant spoke these, those words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. And then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed two hundred of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. When Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. And the princes of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. 1 Samuel chapter 18. Saul asks David, remember, whose son are you, young man? And David, who you remember was an older teenager at this time, perhaps around 17 years old, not quite sure, but he's standing there, remember Goliath's head in hand, and he says, I am the son of Jesse the Bethlehemite. It's a striking image. He's standing there in the presence of, of these leaders of Israel, and he is the one whom the Lord used to deliver His people and strike down the enemy, the accuser of the people of God. I am the son of Jesse the Bethlehemite. It should make us think of another son of Jesse who's defended the people of God. It's a striking image. And when Jonathan, the son of Saul, who's standing there watching the whole thing, sees it and hears him speak, 
It says he is, he is knit to him. He's fastened to him, soul to soul. Jonathan loved David as himself, it says. And that phrase, to love David, that's an important phrase throughout this whole chapter. That word love with David as the object appears six times throughout the chapter. It's here, verses 1 and in verse 3. Verse 16 says, All Israel and Judah loved him. 20 and 28, Michal, daughter of Saul, loved him. 22, all Saul's servants love him. The love of David is a major theme in this chapter. And when we hear it, we need to think about something quite different than romance. This is love in, a, in an attachment sense. as a quite a different bent than, than a heart. Ah, love. And that, that becomes clear when we see its very first usage. Jonathan, who loves him and makes covenant. This is the love of loyalty. Very often the word and language used when covenants were made. Jonathan sees him and is fastened to him and binds himself to him in, in union and in loyalty. Because he sees in this one who stepped out in the name of the Lord to deliver the people of God, he sees a kindred spirit and he says, I am with you. I am yours. I am, I am one with you and with your God. And then Jonathan makes a covenant with him. And he's the one who makes it, which he has to because he's the crown prince. He, he's the one who's above. He's the crown prince, which means he's the one who's next in line for the throne. The prince who would become king. And he's the older one. If you compare different dates in the Bible, and particularly dates about when Saul became king and how long Saul reigned and when David became king and how long David reigned, if you, and you compare those dates, you realize that David was born approximately in the tenth year of Saul's reign. Give or take a little bit. Numbers are rounded off. But approximately in the tenth year, that's when David was born. And very early, the first year or two, we read in chapter 13, Jonathan is already commanding armed men. So he couldn't be much younger than 20 at the beginning of Saul's reign. So you compare those two things. Saul, Jonathan is 25, 30 years older than David. They're, they're not equals. Jonathan is a much older man, which makes what he does here all the more remarkable. He sees this teenager and says, I'm with you. I'm yours. I'll make covenant with you. And to be clear, it's not an equal covenant. It's a I'm beneath you covenant. Verse 4 and following, he strips off his royal robe, his belt, his armor, and his weapons and says here, which is extremely significant because that is what would have identified him as the crown prince. There are no photographs in that day. There's no, there's no media. As he walked around wearing those items, that's how people would have known that's the guy who's next in line for the throne. And he takes that off and says, Here, David, you wear these things. You are the next in line for the throne. I am your servant. That's remarkable for the crown prince who's 30 years older to say. But he does. He loves him and makes covenant with him in loyal submission to him. Now, Saul, for his part, starts off also having a favorable view of David. 
It says he took him to be his servant, didn't let him go home to his father. He claimed him full-time. David had been a partial-time servant. He'd been there playing the lyre and then had gone home to tend the sheep and had come back and gone home. And now he says, no, all the time you're here. Claims him, gives him some promotion in, in, in uh, military ranks, sends him out to battle, uses him. So David's success is, is remarkable and Saul approves of it and even the women dancing in the streets as the army kind of marches back towards home. The women dancing in the streets, they, they sing out, oh, they sing out the praise of, of Saul. They credit him with striking down thousands. And David, ten thousands. All the nation is elated with the substantial deliverance that this army has won for the people. Everybody is elated, that is, except Saul, from verse 8 and following. In verse 8 and following, we, we the reader, we are let in on a little secret. Saul sees all this and is very angry, it says. Jealous threatened for his kingdom. Suspicious now that this David, that now he's just kind of put two and two together. This one is the one that Samuel told me about. The Lord's going to take the kingdom away from me and give it to a neighbor of mine who is better than me. It's him. And he's very angry and very jealous. And it says that his eye was on him from that time forward. The very next day, Saul has one of those episodes that we first read about back in chapter 16 where an, a troubling or an evil spirit from the Lord comes upon him. It's the very same language as back in chapter 16. And I talked more about it back then, but just to be very brief, how can an evil spirit be from the Lord who is good? Well, very briefly, it can't be any other way because the Lord reigns over all things. There is no such thing as anything that does not exist and come from him and his authority. There are not like two powers duking it out. There is one authority and everything exists under him, even evil powers. Read the book of Job, for instance, and see how Satan is on God's leash. God is using an evil spirit here to accomplish his purposes. And here it comes again to torment Saul, and he has one of those episodes, and it says that he's raving. The word there technically is the same word for prophesying. Not that he's giving out utterances of truth, but he is beside himself. Prophets often had what, what looked like an out-of-body experience. They, they were kind of detached or disassociating with reality. They're having an episode, we might say. And Saul's kind of losing it a little bit. And he decides to try to kill David. He, he's tormented, and here's the one who is his deliverance. As he plays this liar, that was the only way that Saul ever found deliverance from this evil spirit. Remember chapter 16, when David played the sweet songs of the Lord, Saul was delivered. But in this moment of rage, he says, no, I'm going to kill him instead. And he tries to. He throws a spear at him, and David evades it twice. <coughs> How did that happen twice? You might think once, but twice? Well, David goes back in there a second time because it's his job, first of all. But secondly, he probably did not think of it as an attempt to murder him. He probably thought, it as, thought of it as 
Saul's kind of having a moment. Dangerous moment, but not a calculated plotting moment. And it's my job to go try to fix that by playing the liar. That's what happened twice. But it was a calculated moment. Even though Saul was raving, he was not unthinking. And he thought, I'll try to pin him to the wall. I'm going to kill him. It was calculated. And the calculation grows. Verse 12 and following, we see that Saul is increasingly afraid of David because he sees that the Lord is with David and not with him. And he knows that. And so he attempts to use the hand of the Philistines, it says in the following verse. He sends them out into, into harm's way repeatedly, hoping that the law of averages will catch up and that somebody will strike him dead. It doesn't work. His success grows. And then he decides to try to use the women that he has at his disposal, his two daughters. He's been slow to keep his word. Remember back in chapter 17, he promised that whoever slayed the giant Goliath would receive his daughter as his wife. Well, he's been kind of slow to keep that promise. But he brings it up again because he sees in this opportunity to send David into harm's way again. But he reneges on that promise. And then he finds that McCall, the younger daughter, loves him. And he says in verse 21, Aha, here is a snare that I will use. A trap. Perhaps again referring to how he'll find more opportunity to send him out to fight with the Philistines. But also, as as we keep reading, we realize that McCall is not a godly woman. And perhaps Saul is plotting my daughter who is not a godly woman, will lead this man away from the Lord and away from his covering. It's a snare. But it doesn't happen. By the end of the chapter, verse 28 and following, David sees and knows that the Lord is with David. And so his fear of him grows even greater and the success of David grows even greater Warfare continues and David gains more and more success and the end of the chapter his name becomes highly esteemed. Chapter with many details over a, a, a non-specific amount of time, but surely there's a good bit of time that passes in chapter 18. So a lot of time and a lot of different details, but the, the common themes that, that draw them all together are a divide that we see emerging among the people of God. There's a split here, a split of love and hate. This dichotomy develops in the chapter. Love, repeatedly emphasized, and hate that's growing. All directed at the same person, the son of Jesse, David. And so the two halves of that dichotomy are going to be what I'm going to develop now in two larger observations, the first of which is longer than the second. Here's my two points. The first one, I'm going to express it as an exhortation to us. Here it is. Because the Lord is delivering through David, give to David your loyal love. Because the Lord is delivering through David, give to David your loyal love. 
That's the emphasis. That's that's the main thrust of the chapter. Six times, as I said, we meet that love towards David, specifically stated in those words, but we could also add on top of it the joyful women singing David's praise. We could add on to a verse 5 statement about how David's promotion was good in the sight of all the people and all the servants. We could add on to the very end about how his name was highly esteemed. So throughout this whole chapter, there is a, a great and growing positive vibe towards David called love. It is loyal love as seen in the actions of the people, particularly at the very beginning and at the very end. Two individuals at the very beginning and very end. At the very end, you have McCall, a woman who, who sees him, loves him, and so then gives herself to him in the covenant of marriage. She sees him, loves him, and commits to him. And at the beginning, of course, we have Jonathan who sees him and loves him and makes a covenant with him. That's how people are responding in this chapter, particular individuals, named groups like the servants. And then just very broadly speaking, verse 16, all Israel and Judah, just everybody. There's a large-scale turning of affection and of loyalty towards David. But it doesn't just happen. It comes from something. We need to look at. There's a progression that leads people, that that moves them towards this loyal love. It starts with another repeated phrase. Three times the passage points out to us, the Lord was with David. The Lord has left Saul and has come to, has uniquely filled, has uniquely empowered David. The Lord is with him first piece of this progression. And then the next step, therefore, David has success. Again, another repeated. Four times the passage emphasizes that. It is, David's success is not because he is brave, strong, quick. It's because the Lord is with him. Chapter 17 that leads us into chapter 18 Obviously, David repeatedly says, the reason that I am able to defeat Goliath is because the Lord will give him into my hands. The Lord with me is what leads to my success. And at the end, 28 and following, the Lord is with David, and so while Saul's fear grows, his success also grows and his esteem grows. So it's implied at the beginning and the end, but it's most explicit right in the paragraph in the middle. Look at verses 12 to 16. Let me direct our attention there. 12 to 16. David is victorious because, verse 14, David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. That's the progression. The Lord is with him and therefore he has great success. Which leads to Saul's fear. Verse 16, but all Israel and Judah loved him. So do you see that? The Lord is with him, so he has success in all of his undertakings, and all Israel and Judah loves him. That's the progression. The love comes from seeing the success that comes from seeing the hand of the Lord on him. And one last piece, note this. The undertakings in which he is successful. What are those undertakings? They're not just random events. 
Again, still in that central paragraph. End of verse 13. He went out and came in before the people. Verse 16. All Israel and Judah loved Him, for He went out and came in before them. That's the language of war. And specifically, it's the job of the king in war. It's why they picked... It's why in chapter 8 they opted for a king. We need somebody to go out and come in before us. To fight for us. To deliver us from our enemies. And so what the progression really is, is the hand of the Lord is on David, and so he has great success in fighting for and delivering his people from their enemies, and then seeing that all who see it love him. That progression, that dynamic is what's going on in this chapter, and... That very same dynamic is, or at least should be, at work in our hearts, church. Think about this. Jesus said on the road to Emmaus, all of the Scripture is about Him. So as we're reading the Old Testament, we are not reading chapters or verses or paragraphs that give us advice about, say, how to pick a king or how to pick a a boss at work or how to pick a pastor. Look for somebody that God's hand is on him and you'll see it in his success and then vote for him. No. It's not about us. It's about Christ. What God is doing here is He's showing us back in this time and place, I pointed out I put my hand on this David and then I showed my favor on him by using him to deliver people from their enemies and I drew love to him. That's what I'm doing now. Putting my hand on, blessing, pointing out this David. Not the one who's been dead for 3,000 years. The new and greater David. Showing this David to be the deliverer of his people to draw your love to him. It's always about Christ. That dynamic should be at work for us too. So we have to stop and, and ponder something. Think about this. God has put His hand on a new and greater David and showed us that to be true by using Him to deliver the people of God and means then to draw our loving, loyal allegiance to Him. So think, look, Behold this King, Christian. And think about all that God's hand on this David has won for you. Or if you're not a Christian, what could be yours if you would become one? Oh. <laughs> God has highlighted in front of us. God has, has clothed in front of us His chosen one. Think of all He has won for you, Christian, as He has gone to war, gone to fight for you at the cross, and in His death, kill death. To bring an end to the accusation that stood against you, and there was a real accusation that stood against you. We are... We are people who are born and we grow up living in a rejection of this one God who reigns over all. And this God in love 
sent His David, His Deliverer, and nailed Him to the cross to remove something from you. To remove off of you all condemnation and all curse and all right judgment. He saved you from wrath, saved you out of guilt, out of disgrace, out of proper shame, out of proper condemnation, delivered you out from death and delivered you into life. That is the gospel of what God has done in Christ at the cross for you. He's delivered you out from death and into a life that is eternal, that starts now. Think of it. Now, He won from you bondage to sin and a remarkable, glorious freedom. Now. What does that mean? Think. It means something marvelous. He won for you a freedom from a bondage that forever was bending you into unbelief and forever bending you away from this good God. He broke that bondage. He's made you free so that you can grow in righteousness. And I'm not talking about a standing before God of approval. I'm talking about a righteousness right now. A right walking. Which means you can grow Growth, change. People of God, we still in this world live grabbed by, plagued by, embarrassed by sometimes, struggling with sometimes we call them habits. Patterns. There's a mark on us of fallenness. It's tragic. Some things you are ashamed of and would cringe to have written on the wall. Because again, this last week it marked you. And some things you're just frustrated by that you just can't seem to get beyond. And some things you weep at as you look at how who you are and what you are has again caused wreckage. Ah, again. But the good news is that when God raised up this David and sent him to war for you, he did not only bring about forgiveness at the cross, he brought about change. He broke this bondage and has given you, in his spirit, has given you a newness that says you can and will grow. That is good news to everybody who suffers and is plagued. Me. What He has won for you. A different life here. Change and growth And He's given you, one for you, fought and given a new mind. Fought for and given a new mind so that you can know God really. 
Not completely. God is infinite. But truly. You can know Him. You can relate to Him. This one. You can relate to God. In whom is all beauty and all goodness and everything that is true and all that is right and everything that is enjoyable and delightful and happy and pure. He is all of that. The fullness of all the perfections that you can imagine. And God has won for you in Christ a new mind that you can know this one and relate to Him. So I'm not only talking about how He's won for you forgiveness at some judgment in the future. And I'm not only talking about how He has won for you the ability to grow and change. He is also on top of that won for you the ability to know God. God! If you were to be able to pick any luminary, any light in all of history, there would be someone that you would say, oh, I would love to have a relationship with that one, for that one to call me friend, for that one to sit down at my table, visit with me, explain to me his or her life, what she thought about, how he understood things, how he conquered, how he invented. That would be a sweet and marvelous relationship to know that one. Friends, you know the light and have relationship with him and can sit down with him every day and know him, not completely, but really What a blessing He has won for you. And on top of that, He has freed you from fear. Glory. Because all the things that we struggle with, all the things we are plagued by, all the things we are embarrassed by, all the things we encounter, they are fearful things. And He has freed you from the fear of being at the random mercy of nature at the random mercy or whim of people who are often merciless. You are not a pinball bouncing around in a machine, sometimes enjoying and sometimes suffering, and then occasionally feeling okay and then being plagued. You are not at the whim of the world, not at the whim of nature or disease or accident or injury or evil or impersonal institutions and governments or very personal next-door neighbors or spouses. In Christ, not only are you forgiven at the cross and not only do you have the promise of, of growth and change and not only do you have a mind that can know God, but also, He has promised that in Christ all things are yours. All things in the world and all things in life and even death itself. Everything now, today, and everything that is to come tomorrow and everything that is in the future. All things are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God the Father's. Picture that. There is God the Father who holds Christ, who holds you, and in you all things. Which means what? Which means that every single thing that happens in this world and in this life to you sits in you, in Christ, in God the Father, is under His sovereign reign to do you good. What have you to fear? Nothing. Not a thing. He has won for you freedom from fear and a confidence in life 
And what rest and what peace. What, what a blessing that is even as we face struggle in this life, even as we are sorrowful in this life, we actually can rejoice knowing that everything has been conquered by Him for you. He has won for you standing in grace, growth in grace, has given you the mind of Christ, has made you an object of mercy, the treasured possession of His Father, dearly and deeply loved. This all, God the Father through Christ the Son, the Son of Jesse, on whom the favor of God rests in abundance, all this He has won for you. Oh, church, Love Him with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. Hallowed be His great name. Oh, the glories of what God has done in Jesus for His people. Oh, the weakness of our hearts that we fail to see it, fail to believe it, fail to be impressed by it. But this one alone demands, and this one alone is worthy of all of our loyal love, all of our allegiance, all of our obedience, all of our submission. Christian, like Jonathan then, you must Step before this one and say, I, in covenant with you, take off my robe and lay it at your feet. And here is my belt. And here is my sword and my armor. And here is my checkbook. And here is my day timer, my calendar, my relationships, my agenda. Here is my goal for my work, my goal for my education, my child raising, my marriage, my love life, my sex life. Here it all is laid at your feet. You are king. To you I give allegiance. Christian church, this is demanded of us, required of us, appropriate of us, and gloriously blessing to us. If you have eyes to see it, it is your good glory, your joy. He is a a good king. All that he has won for you. Fullness of joy is found in this allegiance. Fullness of joy is found in this loyal love to this one who has fought and won for you so much. But watch out, because not everyone sees it. That takes me to the second observation. The second observation is concerned with the warning, which is the other half of this dichotomy that's in this chapter. Beware the jealous fear and anger of Saul who lives inside of you. 
Beware the jealous anger and fear of Saul who lives inside of you. The reason you need to be aware of this jealous fear and anger, my language there in case you haven't caught it, beware of the fear and jealous anger of Saul is because he, Saul, lives in us. We are Saulish, Sauline, if you will. As we read through this passage, we see that David's name is becoming highly esteemed. Everybody loves him except Saul. And he's obviously against him. But it didn't start out that way. He also initially saw God's favor on him. We're back in chapter 17. He even wished God's favor on him. The Lord be with you, son, he said to him before he went out to battle. Saul's not against the Lord being with David. And he saw initially the success of of him fighting against Goliath as a good thing. I mean, we read earlier that he was in the habit of collecting around him valiant fighting men because, hey, he was constantly at war. He needs valiant fighting men. Great. Here's another one. Good. I will, I like your military success. Come to me. Starts off just great. Up until it all becomes a threat to him. Everything changes in a moment of jealous anger. The women sing David's praises in verse 8. Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him. Why? Jealous fear. They have credited David with greater military success. And what more can he have but the kingdom? He has the hearts of the people. He's a military hero. He's wearing the garments of the crown prince. He is a direct threat to my reign as king. That's the problem. And Saul watched him from that day on. And every sign that David had God's favor and every further success of David from then on became an increasing threat to Saul's throne. His fear grows, verse 12. His fearful awe grows, verse 15. He becomes even more afraid of David, verse 29. And so opposes him as his enemy. Resolved opposition. Because Saul sees and knows that this God-anointed David is going to take away his throne. And so moved With jealous anger then, get this, Saul would rather continue to undergo the torment of the evil spirit from which only David can deliver him. He would rather continue to undergo that to get rid of David, the threat. He would rather continue to have Philistines knocking at his door month after month, year after year, than to have David alive and a threat. I think in retrospect, he would rather Goliath have killed David to have stopped this whole thing in its tracks. Saul would rather keep all of this evil and all of the shame and all of the reproach and all of the personal torment if it would also allow him to keep his throne. That's what he most wants. And beware, that's what we most want. Somewhere inside of all of us, 
Saul is natural man. The Spirit of the Lord has left him. And sometimes the spirit of evil comes and torments him, but not always. Most of the time he's not under the direct control, the direct tormenting of the spirit. Most of the time he's just natural, normal man. And natural, normal man wants the throne. And will do anything to keep it. Natural normal man is most concerned with autonomy. Natural normal man is most concerned to look out for number one. Beware. This deep-seated desire to maintain authority and control over one's own life is at the very core of what keeps us out of the kingdom of Christ. It's the very core of what will keep some of us out of the kingdom of Christ forever. Passion for the kingdom of me. Lust for the throne. Even in the face of all of the good that God has done in this king. He has raised him up and shown clearly my hand is on him. Clearly he has won great and marvelous things in the face of that most of the world. You? Question mark? Most of the world will still reject him all the way to their graves. Not because they do not understand. Not because they do not see it. But because they do not want his reign. Is that you? Most of the world... The Bible says, wide is the path that leads to destruction. And most of the world says, I will be king. And the Bible says, then you will perish. Is that you? It is folly and evil. Evil to resist God and folly because it is your death. So if I, if I were to sit down with you and find that that is you, I would plead with you, not in anger by any stretch, But out of love, there is a word coming to you right now while you have not yet perished, saying, grab hold of Christ. Lay before Him all of your your alleged right to rule. And be saved and know forgiveness and know a changed and growing life and know a mind that can relate to God and know freedom from fear. Know Christ. I plead with you. Do not perish. If you go there, it will be your own fault. And it will be tragic. But this thing that lives inside of us, even inside of those of us who have come to Christ and have laid down before Him our lives, There is a very sneaky tendency in us to sidle on over and grab pieces back. Is there not? Because giving up control is hard to do. But it is right and worthy and good and it is your joy. And as He calls you to it, Christian, what He says is, would you look again, would you look again at all that I have won for you in this King beneath His authority? Christian, is Saul's 
jealous fear and anger keeping you away from happy submission to and enjoyment of Christ. In Him, beneath His authority, in loyal love to Him, there is deliverance into life. Trust Him. Surrender to Him. Lay everything at His feet. Define life. Let me pray. Father, would you stir your people to loyal love? Would you convict your people of insurrection? Convict your people of rebellion in the way that you do as a gracious and loving father speaks to a son, speaks to a daughter, an heir, not with anger, with clarity, with firmness, in love. Convict your people. Move your people. Stir them to loyal love to Christ and the surrender of their lives. Father, for those here who don't know You and those others who somewhere, somehow may, may hear this, would You do a work to save. You are our hope. You've raised up for us a king, a deliverer who goes to war successfully to win for us so much. Thank you. Bind our hearts to him, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.